You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome everyone to Teller from Jerusalem. Today is going to be our second installment on gratitude. How many installments should there be regarding gratitude? The answer is, there can never be enough. So, I think it will stop at two, but like we said, there can't be enough. Let's thank you up front to Rabbi Joseph Telushkin's Masterwork, Code of Jewish Ethics, Volume 1, and also thank you to all the artists for the brief musical s- selections that we will be utilizing. Even if those people who've helped you are no longer in a position to help you, indeed, specifically because they are no longer in a position to help you, should find a way to make known to them how you feel. After all, a person expresses gratitude only to those who can help him is manipulative, not grateful. There is a story about the very famous uh, American tycoon and industrialist, Andrew Carnegie. Hey, we just can't say Andrew Carnegie's name without bringing up a little American corporate music, industrial So Andrew Carnegie, the great 20th century business tycoon, his sister lamented to her brother, Andrew, that her two sons who were away at college rarely responded to her letters. Carnegie assured her that if he wrote them, he would get an immediate response. He sent off two warm letters to the boys and told them that he was happy to send them along to each of them a check for $100, which was a large sum of money in those days. Then he mailed the letters but didn't enclose the checks. Within days, he received warm, grateful letters from both boys, who noted at the letter's end that he had unfortunately forgotten to include the check. How likely is it that they would have responded so quickly if the check had been enclosed? And here, let's make an appeal for thank you letters. I still believe in them. Thank you letters are very good. They show appreciation. And I believe that they're also very good for the sender, not just for those who receive them. Long-term gratitude has characterized the Jewish people's attitude towards the righteous Gentiles who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. In Yad Vashem, where I work, or at least I volunteer, the Jerusalem's Holocaust Memorial, there is a large department. I mean, as far as meterage, I can tell you it's quite a large room with several employees. Over the years, Yad Vashem was founded in the early 1950s. There have been hundreds of volunteers in this department of the Righteous Gentile. Their job is to search the world for those people who risked their lives, and probably those of their families, in order to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. So if we're already mentioning this, we're going to tell a story from Schindler's List, so let's bring up some music. Schindler's List, of course, is a list that Schindler, Oscar Schindler, had composed. He was a member of the Nazi party. He composed a list of people that he wanted to save them, these Jews being sent to the death camps. One of the people he saved is Leopold Pfefferberg. If you look at Schindler's List, meaning the list, not the movie, not the film, not the book, but the list itself. Number 173 is Leopold Pfefferberg, and he was convinced that his life was saved thanks to Oscar Schindler. So after the war, he came to America. He changed his name. He Americanized it to Leo Page. And Pfefferberg lived in Los Angeles. He owned a leather goods store. And in Los Angeles and in Hollywood, there are so many directors, 
assistant directors, script writers, producers, assistant producers, whoever came into his shop or whoever he met, he would implore them, please write the story of Schindler. And you should know that uh, Feverberg was so de so committed to Schindler, not only they want to tell the story, but at one point after the war. Now, Schindler is a problematic individual. He was a dishonest businessman, a womanizer, a loan shark, a boozer, an embezzler. But during that critical time of the Holocaust, he saved nearly 1,200 Jews. And forever after, the name Schindler has been synonymous with heroism, bravery, courage, self-sacrifice, synonymous. Like Vaseline means petroleum jelly, and Kleenex means tissues, and Q-tips means cotton swab. Schindler means self-sacrifice. He wasn't such a great guy before the war, a member of the Nazi party, and after the war he went back to his bad ways, but he'll always be remembered for doing the right thing. And here's a very important take-home message. People are remembered for the difficult decisions they make, not for the convenient ones. Back to Pfefferberg. Pfefferberg was determined to make Schindler's name known and how he had saved so many people. So Pfefferberg would implore people, please write his story. Never could get at anyone's interest. One day, an Australian novelist, Thomas Keenley, innocently entered his store, his leather goods store, to buy a leather briefcase, and he had a hard time getting his credit card to work and it took half an hour till he could get Sydney, Australia on the phone. And in the interim, Pfefferberg unspooled himself and told him the story of Oscar Schindler. He was intrigued and he ended up delaying his flight. He spent the night over Pfefferberg's house and he ended up writing Schindler's List. So that book became a famous book. And then Pfefferberg, who still was not done, through one of his customers got the phone number of the very famous producer and uh, director, Steven Spielberg. He would call him up every week and a half and sell to him, you have to make a film about Schindler. At that time, Schindler, pardon me, Spielberg had just finished his film, Jurassic Park, and Pfefferberg called him up and said to him, stop spieling, Yiddish for, stop playing with the dinosaurs. Make a film about Schindler and I guarantee you an Oscar for Oscar. O-S-C-A-R for O-S-K-A-R. If you make a film about Oscar Schindler, and indeed, Schindler's List won seven Oscars, including Best Film. We have to learn to express gratitude to members of our family and to our friends. Many of us take the people closest to us for granted and show far greater appreciation to strangers who have done us a favor than to those who have undoubtedly done us hundreds and hundreds of favors. I would add that... It is natural to be very kind and warm and generous and friendly to your daughter-in-law, to your son-in-law, to your sons-in-law, your daughters-in-law. You have to remember also to be just as friendly and warm to your natural children who are married to your children-in-law. We have to show gratitude not only to those who help you, but to those who help those who you love. Say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what's already yours. That's how I live my life. That's where I, why I am, one of the reasons why I am today. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. Thank you. Thank you.
thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for every moment that led to this day. Thank you for the hard times. They made me appreciate the good times. Thank you for the lessons. They were needed for my development. Thank you for my eyes that get to witness the miracles of today and tomorrow. Thank you for everything I take for granted. Thank you for all of my blessings. Thank you for my drive. Thank you for my spirit. Thank you for my strength. Thank you for giving me the courage to fight through the hard times. Thank you for the people in my life, those I love and those I learn from. Thank you for it all. Thank you. It is also important to remember those who have done us favors even years and years ago, even done favors to those in our family decades ago. That's a hallmark of great people that they always remember to thank those who have been kind to someone many decades earlier and will do tremendous favors and show gratitude to them even though they weren't the personal beneficiaries of these people's kindness. Now we have to remember also to thank those who work for us, particularly those whose efforts we normally take for granted. For example, make known your appreciation to the cleaner who takes care of your house. Don't make him or her aware of the things that displeased you I mean, you can allow to tell them that, but make sure you thank them for all that they've done for you. If an editor has improved your manuscript, make sure she knows how grateful you are and how grateful you feel for this. Do the same for all those who perform services for you. Make sure you understand how much their help has meant to you. Make those people who work for you understand that thanks to them, it's a beautiful day. Sometimes life is good. Try to minimize the favors that you have done for others. As the rabbis teach, if you have done a big kindness for your neighbor, let it be small in your eyes. Otherwise, you can walk around with a constant state of annoyance at others. Look what I did for so-and-so, and he or she never even mentions it. Society functions best when people remember their obligations, when those who have been helped remember the favor, and when those who have helped another don't dwell upon it. Unfortunately, this is a problem, and it's a failing among parents who constantly remind their children of the sacrifices they've made for them. It's not a good idea to keep on saying this. But then again, kids should never think, I don't have to be grateful after all. This is the job of a parent. We have to maximize what others have done for us. As it says, as the rabbis teach us, if your friend did you a small favor, let it be big in your eyes. 
many of us have a tendency to take for granted or forget what others have done for us. For example, let's say every Monday night you go out to an aerobics class. And for the last two years, your friend Beth has been picking you up at quarter to eight to make it for an eight o'clock class. And now it's after a three-day weekend and you're like, you have to write good, you're on the side, you've eaten much too much. But you rationalize it by saying, listen, Monday night I have my aerobics and I'll burn it off. At 16 minutes to 8, Beth calls you up and says, sorry, I just met my friend. I'm going to take her to class and I can't take you. Click. Aggravation, frustration. So abruptly does she tell me this. Now, the fact of the matter is it was abrupt. However, for three years, Beth has been doing you a favor. She doesn't owe you anything. So why is it when someone stops doing us a favor, all we can think about is how they messed us up and don't dwell upon the fact that for three years or however long it's been, they've been doing us a favor. Once someone stops doing something, we have to always remember they don't owe us anything. And we dwell upon what they haven't done instead of being appreciative and grateful for all that they have done. It's good to repay one's kindness by being kind to someone else, even if the person's a stranger. Someone once was kind to you, someone let you in on the highway, let someone else in. It's also important to be grateful to institutions that have helped us, not just individuals. This could apply to a school. Maybe a school gave you a scholarship, or maybe the school gave you a good education. Help the school financially and speak well of it to others. There's a rabbinic expression, don't throw a rock into a well that has fed you. Grant apply applies to many large institutions, even to countries. For example, Jews in the United States have never had it so great. We haven't been thrown out. We haven't been persecuted. I mean, there have been anti-Semitism. There was and there is, and it's growing uh, to our great chagrin. But nonetheless, we owe gratitude. That's why in synagogue we always say a prayer in gratitude to the kingdom or to the government, like it says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. And we can't talk about gratitude without mentioning how inappropriate it is to be an ingrate. If someone has treated you well, don't offer a cynical explanation for that person's behavior. The Talmud asks a question and says, what is a good guest? And a good guest says, how much trouble has my host gone to for me? How much meat has he set before me? How many cakes has he served to me? And all this trouble he's gone to for my sake. That's a grateful person, thinking that they're doing it for me. And that's what the Talmud is teaching us, is that one does not have to be extraordinary, one has, does not have to spend extravagantly to fill the, kind, the obligation to be grateful. You don't even have to go through a significant toil to properly show gratitude. All you have to do is just adjust your attitude to feel that good was done for me. And it's done for me for my own sake. They're not trying to, don't have a simple explanation. They only did it because they want something in back. No, they did it for me. Then the guest shows that they generally appreciate what was done for them. And this will give the party that's done them the favor the same sense that the people are grateful. Then the Talmud asks, that's a good guest. What is a bad guest? And now I'm translating verbatim. They only gave me one cup of wine and only gave me one slice of bread and only gave me one piece of meat and they didn't do it for me. He only wanted to impress his wife and children. That is an ingrate. They can't appreciate what's been done for them. 
and we can save him further. What happens is, is that people sometimes do us a favor. And what do we do? We have, for example, you go to someone's house for a celebration. Someone got engaged. Someone got married. They have whatever celebration. They have a graduation. And these people worked hard that you should have a good time. Maybe even for hours, maybe even days, setting up the house, preparing the food. And then what happens? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. As you're driving home, comes the post, the post-mortem. Salads, atrocious. Home decorating, appalling. Family harmony, children, very misbehaved. This is an ingrate from the rooftops. If you don't have something good to say, then... I know you're thinking, don't say it. We've tried that already. If you don't have something good to say, wait 24 hours. You can't say it then either, but it, it will cool off. Don't be an ingrate to someone who has gone to trouble on your behalf. And if you come from England, on your behalf. Okay, also, don't take advantage of someone who's been good to you. Who violates this, whoever violates this is in the category of an ingrate. Don't point to institutions and perfections that have benefited you. Even though right now you may not have the same philosophy or world perspective as the school which had helped you, or even it could happen in religion, that you once belonged to one synagogue or one church and you've changed, don't be an ingrate because even though you've changed now, they at one point were very helpful to you. Okay, now before we get to a, a portion which I want to read to you from Rabbi Dr. Twersky, in our first installment on gratitude, that was four episodes earlier, we spoke about the correlation between gratitude and happiness, for gratitude is the most important component to achieving happiness. Now we're going to shift to something that Rabbi Twersky wrote. Now, I admit this was written 20 years ago, even though in my belief, everything he has has lasting value. So he makes an important uh, distinction that we fail to make between sometimes confusing happiness with pleasure. And this is what he wrote. There are many definitions of happiness. The Founding Fathers recognized the importance of happiness. Hey, we can't just mention the Founding Fathers without a little patriotic music. The Founding Fathers recognized the importance of happiness in the Declaration of Independence when they designated the pursuit of happiness as one of the inalienable rights of man. Observation of the lifestyle of Americans makes one wonder whether they are indeed exercising the inalienable right to pursuit of happiness. It appears that most people equate happiness with, quote, pleasure, close quote, and are therefore engaged in the pursuit, not of happiness, but in the pursuit of pleasure. While it's perfectly proper to enjoy life, making the attainment of pleasure the goal of life may result in very serious problems. Certainly Rabbi Tursky was aware of this. He, he treated uh, people who were involved in alcoholism, chemical uh, addiction, the drug epidemic among young people, and here's why I say he wrote this 20 years ago, it's no longer just young people, may be due to their viewing pleasure as the goal in life. There is no denying that drugs provide a pleasurable sensation. Furthermore, making sacrifices for a goal is not irrational, and if pleasure is the goal in life, one may even accept sacrificing one's health in the pursuit of pleasure. Perhaps this is one reason why young people who are well aware of the harmful effects of drugs are not deterred by them. If the entire purpose of life is to get pleasure, they reason, 
Why worry about the harmful effects some pleasures may have on life? One youngster was asked what he thought of the slogan, if I'm not mistaken, Nancy Reagan made the slogan, just say no to drugs. His response was, why? What else is there? If pleasure rather than happiness is the goal in life, one may not see anything that can provide as predictable and immediate pleasure as drugs. Personal growth is a major component of happiness. Growth and self-fulfillment can occur only if the person is aware of the character assets he possesses so that he can develop these assets. By definition, low self-esteem means that one is not aware of his or her character assets and therefore considers himself to be unworthy, inadequate, and unlikable. This is a delusion which causes a person great distress and he may use a variety of psychological defense mechanisms or behaviors to cope with these agonizing feelings. This is the problem of low self-esteem, of unwarranted feelings of inferiority. You may have character assets and not know that you even had them. I heard a story from my friend Aaron Levine from Bnei Brak, who told me that he studies in the Slobodki Yeshiva, and there's another individual in that Yeshiva, a Sephardic individual who doesn't speak English, who was diagnosed with cancer, and Rabbi Elimelech Führer, who is a great referral, who has a great referral service, told him that his best hope of recovery would be to go to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, this Sephardic individual, his name is Shimon, he felt that it would be very hard for him to manage in America so far away from his home. He doesn't even speak the language. So he asked Rabbi Levine if he'd be kind enough to travel with him to serve as a translator. Many of you are aware of the fact that the Mayo Clinic is a major medical center. It is so great in everything medical that it has a translator for every language you can imagine. However, when you're feeling pain, you can't necessarily wait the hours until someone comes to translate what the problem is. So he felt he couldn't say no to this request, and he travels with his friend Shimon to America in the Mayo Clinic. One day, while he was in the Mayo Clinic, a Dr. Fluger, I think Dr. Fluger subsequently moved out of Mayo to somewhere on the East Coast, Dr. Fluger, an Orthodox Jew, invited Aaron, my friend, and Shimon, the person who was, had the cancer, to his home for supper. They came for the meal, and Dr. Fluger related the following story that there's a fellow named Bob who is a paraplegic, and because of his situation, uh, let me try and explain this to you, he's suffering from spinal cord injury, which means he has an increased risk of respiratory tract infections like pneumonia, consequential to the weakened muscles in the chest and abdomen, which cannot breathe robustly nor cough. So Bob, one day Dr. Fluger was, again, Dr. Fluger was hosting these two gentlemen, and he told him a story. One day he was walking in the hospital. This story is obviously over 20 years ago. I think everything today is electronic. And he noted a note at the foot of Bob's bed. Some doctor had scribbled a note to the social worker of Bob. Bob couldn't read the note. Bob's a paraplegic. So at the foot of the bed it said, I encourage the social worker to encourage Bob and his family DNR. Do not resuscitate. Do not administer any medicines, any antibiotics because of Bob's poor quality of life. Dr. Fluger was so offended by this note. Who is this doctor who thinks he's, you know, got the syndrome of I am God? And he lodged a complaint with the ethics committee in Mayo. As you can imagine, Mayo Clinic is a tremendous hospital medical center. Obviously, also the ethics committee must be at the highest par in the world. 
He lodged a complaint, and so the head of the ethics committee, well known as a regarded as a great ethicist, invited Dr. Fluger and the offending doctor, who we'll call Dr. O'Neill, to come for a tribunal. And at this session, always you have the prosecuting person speak first. And so Dr. Fluger said to the doctor who had written the note, Dr. O'Neill, he said, Dr. O'Neill, let me ask you, what is your quality of life, 1 to 10? In Mayo Clinic, everything is assessed by 1 to 10. How much pain do you feel? 1 to 10. How much relief do you feel? 1 to 10. Uh, do you feel this drug making any impact upon you? 1 to 10. So he said, Dr. O'Neill, what would you say is your quality of life? 1 to 10. Now, Dr. O'Neill, of course, being a doctor in Mayo, is at the apex of the world. He's on top of the whole medical career, probably getting a very handsome salary, and he said, 6 to 7. 6 to 7 is a very low score. It's barely passing. Then Dr. Fluger turned to the head of the ethics committee and said, tell me, how can we determine what is the quality of life? And he said, the way you determine the quality of life is a person makes his own decision. And whatever decision you make, that is your quality of life. You determine that. So then Dr. Fluger asked the head of the ethics committee, what would you say is your quality of life, 1 to 10? And this doctor also gave a pretty unsatisfactory answer by saying 7 to 8. Then Dr. Fluger said, you know, I suggest, why don't we go visit Bob and ask him what his quality of life is? So all three doctors traipsed into Bob's room and he said, hey, Bob, what would you say is your quality of life? Bob didn't even think for a second. He said, 9 to 10. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes when the weather is good, my mother wheels me out in the gurney. Bob is, at the time, was 46 years old. His mother wheeled him outside and he could smell the perfume of the flowers. He could hear the birds chirping and the bird song. It's beautiful. And you know what? You know what? I'm not a 9 to 10. I'm definitely a 10. And I'll tell you why. I'm a 10 because sometimes my mother makes me oatmeal and people in this situation like Bob, they have to have a very watery gruel. We enjoy oatmeal, the clumpy parts. He only has a watery gruel. But sometimes my mother, she grates apples very finely and she uh, puts cinnamon inside and it tastes wonderful. And in the morning when the sun comes and I feel it's Rays radiating off my neck. You know, I'm a 10. I'm a 10. Bob continued to hold forth, justifying his top score, while these two doctors look at each other in apotheosis and an apotheosis of remorse. Thank you, thank you, incredible miracle worker, sound engineer Howard Felsen. And I'm ending now by telling you Bob's story so well fulfills the lyrics of Satchmo's What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue. Clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. 
the colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of people going by I see friends shaking hands saying how do you do they're really saying I love you I hear babies cry I watch them much more than I never knew, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world, yes, I think to myself. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes a never-fail approach how to inculcate good character. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com. You can find more details about this show and other useful information. Check out the site store, and just by inserting the TFJ code, you will receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced price of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.